Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. From the studios of Rack Monitor, this is Monitor Monday for June 12, 2023. Here's today's rundown. Many hospitals across America are facing staffing shortages. That increases the likelihood of audits by CMS, the OIG, and others. What can be done about this increasingly dire problem? Can technology help hospitals? Today, Chief Executive Officer for MD Audit, Ritesh Ramesh, explains how technology and internal audits can be conducted faster and errors caught earlier. We will also hear from healthcare attorney David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, healthcare attorney Kyla Wonder, and Matthew Albright, who has the Monitor Monday legislative update. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. As we come on the air this morning, an Associated Press analysis found that fraudsters potentially stole more than $280 billion in COVID-19 relief funding. Another $123 billion was wasted or misspent. That, according to the AP, combined, the total loss represents about 10% of the $4.2 trillion the U.S. government has so far dispersed in COVID-19 relief. We have much news to report this morning, and we begin, of course, with Dr. Ronald Hirsch. He's making his Monday Rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Position Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Thanks to Dr. Only for filling in for me last week. She spoke about those patients who were stuck in the hospital without medical necessity, but without anywhere to go. Let me tell you, it's happening everywhere, and there's lots of reasons. I don't have a solution, but I will note the American Hospital Association has been talking to CMS about establishing a per diem payment for the hospital for caring for such patients. Will that happen? Who knows? But you may want to think about how your hospital knows which patients are there for medically necessary care and which aren't. And coincidentally, I discussed how you can do that during my Rack Monitor webcast last week. In other happenings, there have been several speakers here talking about the return of the three-day inpatient requirement for patients who, to get their SNF benefit. But I often hear that the patient must meet inpatient criteria for every one of those three days to count. That's not true. First, CMS does not have any inpatient criteria. They have the inpatient, excuse me, the two midnight rule. But more importantly, the manual states that the inpatient admission must meet the requirements of the two midnight rule, but that unless subsequent days represent a substantial departure from normal medical practice, the patient can access their Part A benefit. Well, what does that mean? Well, if the physician note says keep one more day for SNF, then that's a substantial departure. But keep one more day for monitoring, while not potentially representing unambiguous need for ongoing hospital care, that would allow the day to be counted. So keep that in mind as you navigate this 58-year-old three-day SNF rule. Next, a few weeks ago, I wrote about Rack Monitor. I wrote in Rack Monitor eNews article about the new CMS inpatient rehab facility prior auth program. And if you'll read that, you may have also wondered about the data I presented. CMS data indicated that Texas, with about 2.3 million traditional Medicare beneficiaries, has over 63,000 ERF admissions in 2021. But California, 
with over 3.4 million beneficiaries, has just over 19,000 IRF admissions. Texas has 141 IRFs and California has 87. Is this overuse in Texas? Is it undersupply in California? I have no clue. But if any of you understand this, please get in touch with me. Now, last week, I saw a denial by a payer of a cardiac procedure that was approved as inpatient, but who went home from the recovery room. It was denied. Why? Because the patient never occupied an inpatient bed. What devious methods are they going to come up with to avoid payment in the future? It's just ludicrous. Finally, on LinkedIn last week, someone posted about a colleague, a director of nursing at a hospital somewhere in the U.S., who was on vacation in Costa Rica and a tree fell on her and she had a severe spinal cord injury. Her friends were trying to raise money to have her transported back to the U.S. I learned at a conference several years ago to never leave the country without buying travel insurance with coverage for medical evacuation. These policies are very reasonably priced. If you have international travel planned this summer, please, right now, go and buy one of these policies. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the vice president of R1, RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the RAC report is healthcare attorney Kyla Wonder. Good morning, Kyla. Good morning, Chuck. Uh, and thank you for the introduction. Uh, I'm going to dive right in. Today, I'm going to be talking about SNFs. CMS recently directed the MACs to audit five Medicare claim submissions from every SNF in their jurisdiction. And these audits just began on June 5th, this past June 5th, and will continue to be rolled out in waves. Now, why is this review happening? Well, it is intended to lower the improper payment rate that is occurring across the country in SNFs. In 2022, the CERT program calculated that SNFs had a 15.1% error rate. It was the highest error rate of all fee-for-service provider types and nearly double the 2021 CERT report's SNF error rate of approximately 7.8%. Now, there are several possible reasons generating this high error rate, but the most impactful cause identified in the CERT report was insufficient documentation. 73.8% of those incorrect claims resulted from insufficient documentation. It's not surprising given this that CMS wants to look into SNF billing. CMS also stated that another reason for the substantial increase could be the change in payment model. Uh, the resource utilization group model recently changed to the patient-driven payment model for SNF claims with dates of service on or after October 1st, 2019. However, coming back to the present, uh, the MACs will be conducting probe and education reviews. However, unlike traditional TPE reviews, which would normally have three rounds of audits, there will only be one round, uh, as I mentioned earlier, of a sample of five claims from the total universe of claims submitted by each SNF in this MAX jurisdiction. Now, generally the sample selection will be for a prepayment review, but there can be occasional post-pay review if the provider requests it uh, as a result of a financial burden. The first wave of audits, which as I mentioned, began last week, uh, started with the top 20% of providers showing the highest risk as identified by MAX data analysis. However, some providers that are under review by other contractors uh, will be excluded from the review. All providers, though, regardless of whether any errors are found during the audit, can expect to receive some detailed letters of findings from these MACs. Uh, and if improper claims are discovered among the audited sample, then the provider will receive education from the MAC with the amount and type depending on the error rate. 
providers with an error rate of 20% or less, which it is early on a Monday, so coffee may not be fully in our systems, that is just one incorrect claim out of the five, will receive widespread op uh, education with an option upon the provider's request, of course, to receive one-on-one -on -one education. However, providers with error findings greater than 20% will be offered one-on-one -on -one education in the results letter. And once that MAC reaches out to schedule that education with the provider, the MAC's education should then provide claim-specific information, like the denial reasons, clinical facts. This is intended to be an opportunity for providers to review, to ask questions, and to receive some meaningful feedback. So what can be done right now? Well, for SNF providers, there are at least two things that they can do at this stage. First, and most importantly, SNF providers can start triple-checking their claims before submission to ensure that they have all the necessary documentation. And the second is keeping an eye on the mail for any detailed results letters from the max of these audits. Back to you, Jack. Thanks, Kyla, very much. That was healthcare attorney Kyla Wonder, substituting this morning for Nicole Emanuel. Both are with the law firm of Nelson Mullins. And coming up at about 10 minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Matthew Albright, healthcare attorney David Glazer, the CEO for MD Goddess, and Ratish Ramesh, he's standing by to report our lead story. And Dr. John Selam, he's going to be the rapper this morning. He's going to wrap our broadcast by giving us an analysis of the stories you've been hearing this morning on Monitor Monday. It is June the 12th, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by, everybody. The American College of Physician Advisors is the only physician-led nonprofit national association of thought leaders representing all aspects of the physician advisor role. Developed to expand the influence of physician advisors through education and industry networking, the membership consists of physician advisors and other hospital leaders focused on a broad range of topics, including utilization management, case management, clinical documentation and integrity, regulatory compliance, revenue cycle, and executive leadership. You are invited to partner with physician leaders and associated healthcare professionals and join the effort to foster greater physician executive influence within healthcare systems. Access uniquely formatted Medicare inpatient-only lists designed for ease of use. See results of the latest physician advisor survey and take advantage of CME discounts available only to members. Click on the ad on the Rack Monitor homepage or go to acpadvisors.org to learn more. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. And David, as I say every Monday morning at the same time, what could be risky this morning? Well, Chuck, it's the risk of assuming you understand the word referral uh, when we're talking about Stark. Now, the Stark, st Stark statute and regulations are one of the more complicated in health, in health law. Uh, they certainly keep me busy. The good news is that after 30 years of working on this, a lot of the time I can answer questions really quickly. The bad news is that I still get surprised and that sometimes the answers are truly shocking. So here's a great example of something I've understood for a long time, but that blows your mind. So Stark is commonly referred to as the anti-self-referral law. So what is a referral under Stark? Seems like a super easy question. So let me ask you this. If I'm an orthopedic surgeon and my patient needs a brace, and I say to that patient, braces are us, is the worst store in the world. Whatever you do, make sure you don't get your brace from braces are us. Have I just referred the patients to braces are us if they wind up choosing to go there anyway? 
Now, you might be rolling your eyes at me thinking I'm asking an insultingly stupid question, but this is the nutty part. If the patient gets the brace from Braces R Us, despite my vehement protest, under the Stark Law, I've made a referral. Now, how can this be? It all comes down to definitions. According to the statute, the request by a physician for the item or service constitutes a referral by the referring physician. For items like a brace, the establishment or the request for a plan of care by a physician that includes the provision of a designated health service constitutes a referral. So as soon as the professional says to the patient, you need X, the physician has referred the patient to whatever location the patient chooses to receive X. The referral is the request for the service, not the specification of where the service should be provided. So in other words, while we're talking about a referral under the Stark Law, we really should, we shouldn't, even though the law, I generally like to use the word that appears in the law. This is an exception. We should really be talking about the plan of care under Stark. Now, if this comes as a shock to you, don't feel badly. I was at an American Health Law Conference, American Health Lawyers Conference a few years ago, doing a talk on Stark, and I took a poll of the lawyers using the Braces RS example. Well under 10% of the people in the room correctly concluded that the creation of a plan of care was enough to create a referral. Now, as you know, the Stark Law isn't the only law that references referrals. The Medicare anti-kickback statute also talks about referrals a lot, but there the definition is much more in line with common sense. So there's a very important lesson here. In a highly regulated environment like healthcare, definitions matter. Whenever you're trying to analyze a law, you need to dig into the details. And if you're reading a provision, make sure you've read the definitions that go with it. Common sense understanding of words can be wildly wrong, and they can vary from statute to statute or even within a statute. I've complained before about the No Surprises Act is particularly sloppy with definitions. Within Medicare, a provider is usually a facility paid under Part A, like a hospital or a skilled nursing facility. In the No Surprises Act, physicians are defined as providers. In other parts of Medicare, they're suppliers. In our highly regulated industry, Gloria Estefan and the Miami Sound Machine are right. Sometimes, Or perhaps more accurately, the words aren't the problems, but poor definitions are. Chuck, back to you. <laughs> Thanks, David, very much. That was Healthcare Attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Next, Matthew Albright with the Monitor Money Legislative Update. The legislative update is sponsored by Zealous. Zealous is modernizing the healthcare financial experience by bridging the gaps and aligning interests across payers, providers, and healthcare consumers. Here now is Matthew Albright. Thank you, Chuck. Chuck, while we usually touch on emerging or existing legislation during this segment, I thought I'd pivot and talk about something happening in the healthcare marketplace that has surprisingly little regulation or really any oversight at all. And that's the growth of retail health. That is, clinics or healthcare services being offered in the retail settings, clinics in pharmacies, grocery stores, shopping centers. Walmart, Walgreens, Amazon, CVS, they're all jumping into the game. 
with significant investment and acquisitions happening just in the past year. Retail health's appeal to consumers is that basically healthcare is provided like any other retail commodity. Retail health clinics offer uh, often offer convenient hours, walk-in or last-minute appointments, less expensive services, and transparency in their pricing. Retail health clinics are mostly staffed with physician assistants and nurse practitioners who, in turn, are offered regular hours and strong administrative support. The forecast for retail health in this post-pandemic era is bright and sunny. According to an analysis by Bain and Company, retail health has the potential to grab as much as a third of the U.S. primary care market by 2030. Indeed, one survey says that about two-thirds of Americans believe that five years from now, most primary care services will be provided at retail health clinics. Now, the potential for growth is, in one part, energized by brand familiarity, right, and loyalty. For example, over 40% of Americans shop at Walmart on a weekly basis, and nearly two-thirds of American adults have an active Amazon Prime membership. Now, while retail health is making a move into primary care, recent action seems to indicate that they may be using relatively inexpensive primary care services as a loss leader for them to enter the chronic care arena. CVS has recently bought Oak Street, which, yes, is primary care, but is primary care for the Medicare crowd, where reimbursement will be value-based and where 9 out of 10 patients have a chronic conditions. CVS has also bought Signify, and that's a home health company. Now, in order to successfully manage chronic care, as many of us know, a healthcare entity needs to a healthcare entity needs to be able to track and communicate with patients and establish a network of providers for successful continuity of care. So does retail health have that? Maybe not yet, but retail health clinics are digitally connected to the consumer and they do appear to be well poised to move patients seamlessly between in-person care and virtual care. Most importantly, retail health can afford to experiment and maybe fail with some of those experiments. And why? Because they are well bankrolled by huge corporations. As I mentioned, the retail health sector is remarkably unregulated. Most states do not have facility license to retail health clinics, avoiding oversight by state departments of health. Only Massachusetts has regulations designed specifically for retail health. Massachusetts limits the clinics to a specific set of services. And in fact, one service that retail health clinics cannot provide in Massachusetts is primary care. Stepping back, if we use the language of retail and capitalism, it has become apparent that in the next few years, hospitals and physicians are going to have to compete for a decreasing number of paying customers, that is for commercially insured patients. Most of the population is aging in or becoming eligible for government programs. Utilization of healthcare services are down 6% from pre-pandemic levels. Emergency room visits are down 30%. And compared to pre-pandemic levels, the only increased usage in healthcare services are in urgent care and hospital outpatient. And into this competitive environment, Chuck, retail health is throwing its hat into the ring. It's the Walmarting of American healthcare, Chuck. Back to you. Thanks, Matthew, very much. That was Matthew Albright. Matthew was the Chief Legislative Affairs Analyst for Zealous. As you heard us mention at the top of the broadcast, America's hospitals, many of them are facing 
critical labor shortages. And with those shortages, of course, comes the likely prospect of more audits by CMS, the OIG, and others. So, could technology come to the rescue? Well, the reported lead story this morning is Ratish Ramesh. So, what is the outcome here, sir? Good morning, Chuck. I'm going to talk about three uh, key challenges uh, that the healthcare organizations face. What can billing, compliance, and revenue cycle management teams do to mitigate those challenges? and how technology and AI can help. Uh, first, to set the stage, if you really look at the three challenges that healthcare organizations around the country face, after operating in the red for the past 12 months, the good news is the US hospitals finally broke even in April. But uh, as we all know, the, the public health, emer- health emergencies, uh, Medicare continuous coverage requirement has come to an end, so we are not sure in terms of how the financial impacts gonna play out for the rest of the year. But one thing we also know is they continue to face supply and labor cost issues, uh, almost raising 22% between last year and this year. So profitability remains a main concern for most of the US hospitals and uh, and other organizations. On the labor side, 63% of the organizations say they face uh, staff shortages, especially in billing and revenue cycle management departments. And four in 10 organizations report that they have vacancy rates between 51 to 75%. So if you really look at some of the challenges in labor and profitability against this backdrop, some of the demands for the billing compliance and revenue cycle teams have not decreased. Actually, they are starting to face increasing regulatory requirements from Medicare integrity program activities because those programs for Medicare return almost $8 for every single dollar spent on audit activities. And for fiscal year 2023, Medicare has almost budgeted $2.5 billion in mandatory and discretionary investments in healthcare fraud and abuse control and Medicare integrity programs. Medicare and CMS are also investing in artificial intelligence and predictive modeling technologies, which will allow them to screen more claims and send more audit letters to healthcare organizations. And commercial insurance uh, players are also following the same lead in in adopting advanced technologies and stepping up the number of audits. And one of the numbers I saw pre-pandemic was almost 25% of the hospitals were responding to a survey and saying, they received anywhere between 500 to 2,000 post-payment audits a month. And as we talk to our customers this year after the pandemic, those numbers have increased twofold, threefold, and almost quadrupled in some situations. So healthcare organizations are facing a lot of issues when it comes to staffing, profitability, and then increasing requirements from the payers. Now, what are they doing about it? Um, 78 percent of respondents of a recent HFMA survey said that they are deploying automation and analytics uh, in in their RCM functions, um, and they plan to do more this year, which is great. And according to our own benchmarking report with an MD audit, what we see is many of our customers are using technology to do more prepayment audits by 30%. They are also doing more risk-based audits where they are looking at their own data to uncover risks when it comes to compliance risks and revenue risks. And doing so, they are retaining as much as 25% of the total revenue due to incorrect billing and coding practices. So what can technology do? Technology can really help you with staffing issues because it can optimize their time with efficient workflows. 
It can really identify anomalies when it comes to billing and coding that can impact your revenue. And more importantly, it can train and retrain your staff and help in retention. So my parting thoughts in the segment is uh, every challenge is a great opportunity within healthcare and revenue cycle management and billing compliance can play a very critical role in making sure healthcare organizations can retain their revenues and be profitable. And they can do so by adopting technologies and analytics, which can help uncover compliance and revenue risks, and also make sure that their workflows are streamlined, their employees are happy, and they can really retain revenues uh, and also help uh, in fulfilling those audits, which are coming their way. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Ratish. That was the Chief Executive Officer for MD Audits, Ratish Ramesh. Too many regulatory changes, too many auditors, too many instances where if you're not up to date, it could cost your facility an audit. These are tough times for providers, and the outlook on the audit landscape is frightening. Help is here. Now more than ever, this is the time, and Rack Monitor is the place for you to get on board with a Rack Monitor compliance webcast subscription. Your team will benefit from the latest compliance and regulatory educational topics from the industry's most respected source of compliance and auditing news and education, Rack Monitor. Subscribe to the Rack Monitor Compliance Webcast Series, and you and your team will have the latest, most crucial information to remain compliant while avoiding audits and takebacks. It's the Rack Monitor Compliance Webcast Series. We have a couple of minutes to answer your questions, so David, please join me, won't you? I will. Christina's got a question, and I'm wondering if maybe Kyla or Ron, when we'll start with Ron, want to chime in on this. So Christina's wondering, hey, what does CMS expect hospitals to do when a patient or their family insists on an ERF after hospitalization, um, but the physician and care team have recommended a SNF or home health, but the ERF says, hey, we'll happily take the patient? If this is a traditional Medicare fee-for-service patient, the ERF is welcome to accept that patient. There is no requirement for the hospital to approve it, for the doctor to approve it. You can get admitted to an ERF from the community. Um, so it's really them risking accepting a patient who doesn't meet CMS's ERF standards. Now, if it's and a I Medicare guess, Advantage plan, it's different. I guess the fear is, Ron, that Medicare wouldn't want, that you, they might not get a line on the fee. That's, I'm trying to make a feline joke here, and uh, I'm, I'm stretching it really hard. Um, yes. Okay. Never I, mind. You know, it, it's interesting because in this case, the, my first reading of this is I'm wondering if the physician or hospital are part of a, a bundled payment program where an earth transfer will result in an adverse financial effect on them. And that's certainly inappropriate to consider that if the earth is the appropriate location for that patient for their rehabilitation. So a lot to unbundle here. Speaking of unbundling, hey, Kyla, do you want to chime in at all on that? In terms of the unbundling or the, uh, the actual just transition, as to what CMS expects a hospital to do, I'm going to go with they probably have not thought about this. Or if they have, they have not really considered that a patient's family would want this if their patient could qualify for a skilled nursing facility. So, I, I mean, I wish I had a crystal ball as to scry into CMS and figure out what was going on in that room when they said to set this up. But unfortunately, I, I am not entirely sure because I would agree it doesn't seem quite right. Well, thanks, gang. Uh, Chuck, we will turn it back to you. Thanks very much uh, for your questions and your comments. And uh, joining me now for his insight on today's stories is the rapper. That would be Dr. John Zellum. Good morning, Dr. Zellum. 
Good morning, sir, and good morning, everybody. I have to say that the presentation by Matthew Albright really resonated with me because I, if the growth of uh, retail health is going to solve a lot of these problems, I am very much for it. I hear lots of complaints all the time from families and actually personally about the ability to get in contact with your doctor, to get your lab test back in a reasonable period of time, even a pathology report. You have to wait two weeks to get it. Now, we all know that the pathology report doesn't, two weeks, doesn't take two weeks to get to the doctor. Secondly, if you have a question, you call the office. You're lucky if you can get a response in a short period of time. Recently, a physician that I went to, they have a portal and I had a question that I put in there at uh, 6.30 at night, knowing that I wouldn't get an answer. The following morning, by 8.30, I had an answer to my question with a direction of what I needed to do next. This is what we are missing in healthcare. And physicians are so well protected by their staff that they don't get uh, half of this. Now, this may be physician-directed in the office, but the reality is, is that it's a real problem. As the American population, and probably most people are interested in immediate gratification, it is truly lacking in the uh, typical health care that we have right now. Back to you, Chuck. That was Dr. John Zone, the founder of Streamline Solutions Consulting. And that's going to be a wrap for this live edition of Modern Money. And I want to thank you very much for joining us today. And a special thanks to our panelists, Matthew Allwright, David Glazer, Dr. Ron Hirsch, Ratish Ramesh, who reported our least story, Kyla Wander, who substituted for Nicole Emanuel, and of course, Dr. John Zellum. Never miss a Monitor Monday. Simply visit rackmonitor forward slash podcast and join our community. And one more thing before we go, be sure to listen to me tomorrow on Talk 10 Tuesday. That's where we're going to be reporting about getting the billing out on time because, you know, a lot of hospitals are missing lots of money because of these delayed billings. Until next Monday, I'm Jack Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Goodbye, everybody. Talk to you later. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor. Rack Monitor.